Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, I'm Simon Brew, the editor of Film Stories magazine, and this is the Film Stories podcast. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honoured if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, there's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of this podcast is, as the title of it suggests, we're here to talk about the stories behind films. They might be production stories, development stories. They might be stories that got, uh, of films that got stuck around in development hell for ages. Really just the, the, the little tales, the small moments that help turn the films that we know and sometimes love into those very movies. Film Stories podcast is part of the, uh, it sounds very grandiose, uh, Film Stories empire which includes film stories and monthly magazine uh, which i'll tell you a little bit more about halfway through for now though let's just crack on um and let's go back to the early 1980s to a pretty maligned comic book movie sequel but one that i really like an awful lot let's have a clip and then i'll take you through the story the other side of that no no here let me help you it was a perfect plan it was foolproof. And we were the fools. It's not my fault. I did what I was supposed to do. You can't blame me. He ruined it. Every time they make a mistake, the lousy do it. Now that he's pulled off this stunt, he'll try and stick his nose into my oil scheme and ruin that too. Who's the teacher sent to the principal's office? I've got to get rid of him. But how? Shoot him? You know about him and bullets. Kryptonite. What? Kryptonite. Everybody knows it's Kryptonite. That's 1983's Superman 3, a film directed by Richard Lester. The screenplay to this one, in the end, well, that ended up credited to David Newman and Leslie Newman uh, with apparently some uncre- well, uncredited credit, uh, character work by Maria Puzzo. The movie stars Christopher Reeve, Richard Pryor, uh, Jackie Cooper, Mark McClure. You've got Annette O'Toole in there as well. You've got Annie Ross as the terrifying Vera as well. And in that clip, you're primarily hearing the words of Robert Vaughan as the villainous Rob Webster. Now, Superman 3, I see it's a pretty well-known story that the production of the first two Superman films, Superman and Superman 2, wasn't really the easiest. That the, the master plan on that one was to film Superman and Superman 2 uh, back to pretty much at the same time. Um, we, we talked about this a little bit when I did the Film Stories episode on Back to the Future 3 about how ambitious it is to do something like that. And Super, the Superman and Superman 2 are very much ahead of their time there. And certainly in blockbuster circles, they were the forerunners to even attempting it. But producers Ilya and Alexander Salkin hired Richard Donner to make the first two films. Um, Donner 
would not complete Superman 2 that he was he would be replaced what happened is super uh, uh, production just in the end focused on getting the first Superman film done so once that was done and dusted they went back to finish Superman 2 with a change of director that Richard Lester was brought in after the Salkins fired Richard Donner as you might expect, this caused a reasonable amount of unrest. That, uh, that It's said that the reason uh, Gene Hackman wouldn't go on to appear in Superman 3 was because he wasn't happy with them over the firing. Although the counter story to that was that Hackman wasn't keen on Lex Luthor just appearing as the villain in every single film. Likewise, Margot Kidder was said to be particularly unhappy. This was downplayed subsequently as well. But nonetheless, her character of Lois Lane is, is really in the backdrop of the film, barely in it. And instead, uh, Annette O'Toole's Lana Lang was brought more to the fore. If there was a moment with Superman 3 that kind of changed it all, though, it was an episode of The Johnny Carson Show. Now, by this stage, the Salkins wanted to press ahead with Superman 3. It was pretty much a no-brainer, uh, even in a, a less sequel-virulent era of movie-going, uh, as the early 80s was. Um, and Richard Lester was going to come in, and he was going to get the chance to do the, the, you know, the entire film. He wasn't going to come in halfway through this time. And whilst he did take, in the end, sole directorial credit for Superman, Superman 2 it's a well-known story that there is a Richard Donner version that was indeed put together uh, for a DVD release a few years ago, although crucially Richard Donner himself didn't oversee it. So much the same way that there's an extended cut of Alien 3 that's said to be close to director David Fincher's vision for that film. Fincher didn't oversee that one either, and it was more assembled from notes um, and, and materials that they had available to them. In the case of Superman 3, this was going to be a Richard Lester film, but on that episode of the Johnny Carson show that I was talking about, Richard Pryor was a guest and Richard Pryor was, was a I mean, the, the late, great Richard Pryor, his career was very much booming at this point. He A big star and only growing. And he was effusive about the Superman films in that interview that he, he, he openly said, I, I love the Superman films. And he crucially dropped into the interview that he'd really love to appear in one. And the Salkins were listening. And you know what? They'd really love him to appear in one as well. The idea of getting such a big star. See, it's something as a coup to attract them to a Superman film. And as such, seeing the appeal of adding Pryor's name to, to the ensemble, an approach was made to Richard Pryor. And Richard Pryor instantly said yes, he wanted to do it. And as a consequence of that, the direction of Superman 3 was changed. Now... At this point, the screenplay was being put... Because of the departure of Richard Donner, there's a lot of unrest behind the scenes as well. So original screenwriters, most of the original screenwriters weren't coming back, that there were personnel changes, and that was behind-the-scenes unhappiness, and, and no shortage, really, of it. The ones who did come back were David and Leslie Newman, um, and they, they were hired to write a screenplay based around Richard Pryor's character. The character that would go on would be Gus Gorman in the movie. And as Christopher Reeve would discuss in his own memoir, and there's also, an, I should actually just say, there's an excellent book charting the whole development of Superman films in Hollywood. And it is called Superman vs. Hollywood. And it's terrific if you get a chance to read it because it does far more justice to the whole history than I could possibly do in one episode of this podcast. I, I can't recommend that book enough. In the case of um, in the case of Christopher Reeve's memoir, which is also an excellent, Excellent read that I recommend. 
He notes at that point that Superman 3 was more of a Richard Pryor comedy than a Superman film. And it's quite telling that in uh, in a really rich autobiography, Reeve doesn't really talk about Superman 3 an awful lot. And in fact, he would dismiss Superman 4 in a sentence in that book. I mean, he, he just had no shrift with that at all. Uh, the infamous story of Superman 4's budget being cut very much at the last minute. And that, that may be one we come back to in a future episode of film stories but I'm just going to quote a passage from uh, Reeves book because it does kind of get to just what it hints at the stories behind the first two films and those little moments that really contributed to help make those so strong and how those checks weren't necessarily in place to the same degree in Superman 3 so he quotes says Superman film in the first draft of Superman and he's talking about the first Superman movie uh, there was a scene in which Superman sees a bald man walking down the street Thinking it's Lex Luthor, he swoops down to collar him and take him away. But it's Telly Savalas, uh, Telly Savalas playing Kojak at that point on on the small screen and a big star. Telly Savalas, who says, "Who loves you, baby?" to the startled Superman and offers him a lollipop. And this is uh, what Reeve says of that: is this was the kind of inane material that Dick Donner got rid of immediately. Unfortunately, gags like that, like this, resurfaced in the script for Superman 3. And so he said the Newmans wrote a scene in which Pryor, wearing skis and sporting a pink tablecloth as, super, as a Superman cape, zooms off a little ski slope on the top of a high rise. He falls down the side of the building and lands miraculously unhurt. And it is a huge fall he does in the middle of traffic on a busy street, then waddles towards the sidewalk, oblivious to all the honking horns and staring pedestrians. And Reeve just says of that, uh, he, he just didn't like it. He, he just found the whole whole film quote mostly a misconception in fact that particular scene that he was talking about was filmed in in two completely different places as well that uh, the the bit of coming down coming down the building on skis was uh, was filmed in Calgary, Canada, where tax breaks made uh, meant that the production cited its Metropolis double scenes that it was far cheaper to do that. And then the ski slope itself was built at Pinewood Studios, which I'll come back to shortly. But Reeves on on the money there in the, how the tone of the film had shifted. And in fact, whilst there was an extended version that played on television that did add certain sequences to it including the iconic title sequence that title sequence was missing from superman 3 that it opened just with credits rolling over an opening scene that almost uh, i wouldn't say descends into fast because there's a deliberate element of fast to it a mime artist in there there's a robbery going on this was actually filmed in locate on location in calgary as well and all sorts of mishaps and comedy bits of slapstick and straight away the tone of the film has changed i mean far better people than me have written an awful lot of words on the fact that the superman at heart is a jesus christ metaphor and the first two films very much play into that the third film's just having none of it it just moves it just moves completely away from that in favor of this slapstick comedy that over time well at the time time was was heavily criticized and as you heard Christopher Reeve for one wasn't a fan but I am and I was I, I think Superman 3 is is a, a film with some incredibly incredibly good moments in it actually but also I fundamentally enjoy it I mean in my previous job I broke down how the, the whole essence of Gus Gorman as a computer program and how if you freeze the programming code on certain elements you can see the code that he's typing in is nonsense but it's just brazenly nonsense how if you freeze in on a match uh, matchbook at the start the, te- the prop department's put a telephone number that just reads telephone number 01234567 Loads of 
some little bits like that that just uh, high definition Blu-ray 1080p resolution has just allowed you to zero in and just not in a, not in a kind of nasty nitpicky way. But I just find stuff like that an awful lot of fun. One of the interesting things about Superman 3, I mean, it's very much clearly a practical film that the, the, this was, while, while special effects were gradually creeping in, the vast majority of the work had to be done practically. And around the time of the film's release, um, a really quite comprehensive one-hour making of um, a documentary came to light. And this has surfaced on YouTube. And what's really what's really quite interesting, number one, it's quite spoilery in terms of elements of the film, but it does take you behind an awful lot of how the practical work on the film is done. And there was a lot in there that I didn't... I mean, it's well known that Derek Meddings just did some amazing miniature work in the Superman films. But also, I'm just taking you through a couple of things. That, that ski slope, for instance, there's, there's behind-the-scenes material on that. And that was built on a, a soundstage at Pinewood. It took three months to build. And... Not not unlike when we talked about Die Hard 2, again in a previous episode of the podcast, there was the problem of snow. How do you put realistic looking snow uh, on, onto a cinema screen? In the case of Superman 3, this would be on a ski, a ski slope that was being housed indoors. The cost of freezing that entire soundstage was just prohibitive. And they had to come up with something that A, looked like snow on, on, on screen. And B, you you wouldn't melt basically, and they used they in the end they brought in seventeen tons of special salt in order to achieve that effect. The visual effects guy, uh, one of the visual effects team on Superman Three, was a man called Roy Field, and he talks in this documentary about there's a moment in Superman Three where Superman flies away and basically freezes a lake, which he uses to put out a fire. That he finds the lake, he blows very cold air over it, freezes it, is able to lift the lake up and then drop it on the fire and put the flames out. And it's one of those things that, as they acknowledge, it's very easy to write down the script, but when you actually come to realise it, and basically your computer effects uh, computer, uh, computers are Commodore 64s and Spectrums, they don't say that, but I like to think that they were. How do you do it? And he talked about how you do it. So basically, first of all, to get the uh, the effect of a frozen lake, they, they just painted they, they, they painted this block. They painted it as a lake that was freezing. Um, and then so that gave Christopher Reeve something to lift up. And then gradually they stripped the paint off as it as it as they needed to show it melting more and more and more. And then you get this overhead shot of the lake falling down onto the fire. And they used bits of, they used candy glass for that. They used breakaway glass and they had to physically break it up frame by frame into fragments. So they shot it from above. And what happened is they went to a soundstage, they, they shot uh, material of steam, they shot uh, some ice, and then they shot frame by frame, almost stop frame animation to a degree, them just hammering away at this uh, and chipping the lake. So that achieve the effect of as it dropped down onto the fire it was, it, it was melting before you then it turned to steam and then the fire went out lots of ingenious things in the midst of that Richard Pryor was uh, he's, he's very much centric in that documentary. I mean, they got their money's worth out of him. He was reportedly paid about $5 million to appear in the film, which was an enormous amount by that stage. But then conversely, the Salkins had paid an enormous amount to Marlon Brando to mumble his lines in, in, the, in the first two films anyway. Um, he would eventually say, in fact, Pryor, in, I think it's in his autobiography where he talks about making Superman 3 and just says he thought, he thought the script was terrible, but the money was great. So he took the money. The, my favourite sequence in Superman 3, though, is there's a moment, and I'm going spoilery, so I, I fully understand if you want to check out, and, and thank you so much for supporting. 
I'm gonna press ahead after I've just paused just for a second. If you're still here, then I'm assuming you're okay with the spoiler. So there's the bit where they go to a, a junkyard and evil Christopher, evil Superman fights uh, Clark Kent. And the, a lot of this, well, it's achieved in camera. And I've been quite critical in recent times of the current trend of superhero and comic book movies to end with just a great big CG fight sequence where you just see a load of flashing effects and there's no real stakes and there's no real heft to it. And you're just like, well, we've got to get through 10 minutes of this because we know damn well who's going to win. In the case of Superman 3, the Superman versus Superman fight, Superman versus Clark Kempfire. Again, you you know who's going to win, but I just found that quite something at the time, and I still do. I think it really stacks up as a as a really good third act, unusual showdown feel, and it's quite interesting. Uh, to my knowledge, no one's really tried to do the same thing since, um, and it's it's incredibly well realised. Now it was all shot on the back lot at Pinewood Studios that they created at what they describe as an auto graveyard there, but. All the cars in there had to be American cars. So it sounds like just like a, a, a difficult job at the best of times, make a junkyard in the back or at the back of Pinewood. But to only use American cars, they were facing having to import all these cars over from the US. And they just get they got a stroke of luck. Um, in that there was a local dealer, a local American car uh, spare parts dealer, who had to move his business, and all of a sudden, his all of his old stock became available. And with that slice of luck, they were able to dress that particular set. Even so, they they designed that whole sequence around the car crush, uh, the car crushing uh, machinery, and Colin Chilvers uh, did that for the film. They sped up the mechanics of how, how long it takes for a car crusher to close from 15 seconds to 5 seconds and made sure that, that Christopher Reeve was very much in the midst of it. One of the things that really comes across in the documentary is the influence Reeve has, and appreciating it's a promotional documentary, but nonetheless, this comes through in most interviews I read about the film, is the influence Reeve had in making sure the whole thing looked good, that he was a far less experienced actor on Superman and Superman 2, but I got a real sense that he was a bit more of a guardian of making sure that this was right on Superman 3. And that's no slight against uh, any work in previous films or how they turned out. But there's the, the, the meticulous planning of making sure that, that the moves were right, that it all looked believable, really comes across. The other quite wonderful moment that I really love is when you get to the giant computer set at the end uh, for the for the showdown and you get the character of Vera who goes this terrified me as a kid Vera's played by Annie Ross and she gets turned into evil robot woman basically and I watched Superman 3 in the cinema I was young and she haunted my dreams she was the one of the, the probably the most terrifying movie villain of my childhood but there's a lovely moment in the midst of it so that's that I mean that set was built on the W 007 stage at Pinewood um and it was that the, when they when they were shooting it the bit where she comes out of of the door of the computer and is be uh, is about to be zapped and then she has to step back there's one take where paul weston who's one of the effects team runs out to save everybody dressed as batman in the first uh for, to my knowledge a live action movie batman versus superman moment shame that didn't make the final cut but what really comes across it i took a million dollars to build that computer set um, and it's a mix of optical effects and mechanical effects that you see on screen and then they had to blow it up 
and the meticulous planning involved with blowing up was that whole thing you get one chance and this wasn't like independence day where for instance they blew up the model of the white house that they built they were built they were blowing up in this case a full set a fully built set which they did with char- they did it that what what was becoming the traditional way you point multiple cameras at it um, and then edit between the footage as seen um, charged with explosives and off it goes The film then was shot in the middle of 1982 and it would be released in cinemas the following summer. So it came out June the 17th, 1983 in the US, July the 19th, 1983 in the UK. But this time, as opposed to uh, uh, countering the huge praise that the first two films had got, the reaction to this one was far, far uh, less positive that it was heavily criticised by many. I think it was Leonard Moulton who who particularly said that that they trashed what Superman was supposed to be about in going for the laughs and the, the that was the thing that really came in that the the fact that it played so heavily to Richard Pryor it sort of forgot to be a Superman film however there were things that came through Christopher Reeve by this point clearly owned the role of Superman and, and will for all time and the, the evolution of Clark Kent as well um was quite quite wonderful in the movie but the box office this time well it wasn't that great the film had cost uh, I think it cost about 40 million dollars to make and the box office returns well they came in at a far more modest 60 million dollars that things hadn't really gone quite even though it was a hit movie they hadn't really gone to plan at the box office with that box office gross in the US that said uh, things would not improve in that department the rights would change hands uh, for 1987's Superman for the quest for peace but that is a whole other story for now though I, I refuse to subscribe to the notion that Superman 3 is not a good film I do actually think it's a good film I think it's an enormously fun one I love it a lot and Christopher Reeve's Superman I mean come on you just can't beat that can you We're at the halfway point then of the latest film stories. I'm just going to do a couple of gratuitous plugs, but if I talk quickly, please don't fast forward. Uh, Number one, thanks to everyone who's been reviewing this podcast on their podcast repository of choice. It does actually make a huge difference to us that uh, it helps us bubble up listings and stuff like that and all sorts of algorithms I don't understand. If you can subscribe to us as well, it helps us enormously. We also do a print magazine, Film Stories, which is monthly, and that's a, a mainstream UK film magazine. You can order a copy at filmstories.co.uk where you can also find out about subscription details on on the magazine and how to write for it should you wish to on to then the second film in this episode of Film Story, the 47th episode of Film Stories. My life, we're getting old. Um, this time I'm going forward a few years from where we were. We're going to 1990 and we're going to have some creepy spiders for you. Let me play you a clip from the trailer for 1990's Arachnophobia and then I'll pick up the story. Hollywood Pictures and Amblin Entertainment present Jeff Daniels. Honey, we're in the living room. We need you to kill a spider. And John Goodman. Bill McClintock, infestation management. Oh, my guy's just a spider. Would anybody object if I tore this floor out? I would. False alarm, then lead on. There's no spider here. Every so often in a little town somewhere, there is a health scare. There's a rumor going around that some kind of spider might have killed Sam Metcalf. Doubtful. Spiders make convenient culprits. There's no spider here. 
No, there are lots and lots of spiders here instead. 1990s arachnophobia. The directorial debut of Frank Marshall, coming back to that. Uh, written by, well, the story credit goes to Don Jacoby and Al Williams. The final screenplay to John uh, Don Jacoby and Wesley Strick. The cast, well, you just heard John Goodman as, as the wonderful Delbert McClintock in the film. Jeff Daniels is the lead as Ross Jennings. Harley Jane Kozak as Molly Jennings. Um, and Julian Sands, in a very Julian Sands, uh, <laughs> iconic Julian Sands performance really as Dr James Atherton now the film came together from all places at Disney and I again I've talked in pre- previous film stories episodes about Disney's uh, Disney's approach to making movies in the 80s and 90s where the ultimate aim was to, to up the number of films quite contrary to where it appears to be going at the moment that uh, it had an ambition at one stage to have a new film in cinemas every single week in the case of Arachnophobia it was the debut for its Hollywood Pictures label now we have to go back a little bit to a, a film in the late 70s, The Black Hole, which was a Disney film that didn't have a U rating. And this was, or a G rating in the US, but this this was a, a cause of some consternation that at that point the Disney brand was very much associated with nothing but very, very, very clean-cut family fare. And so off the back of the backlash over The Black Hole, Touchstone Pictures came to life with films like Splash, with Dead Poets Society, um, Dan Nett and Beverly Hills. In fact, we talk quite a lot about Bette Midler's films in issue four of the Film Stories magazine. That's a clever plug. Do you see that? Great. Um, Hollywood Pictures was another label that that came out in 19... uh, uh, Well, its first film was in 1990. And it came about with the aim of, again, let's put more grown-up fare out that doesn't have the Disney name attached but he's he's made by Disney now Frank Marshall at this point well he'd been a producer for 20 years that he worked extensively with Steven Spielberg of course uh, through his Amblin production company and he produced or executive produced films like Gremlins, The Goonies, Poltergeist. Uh, he'd been involved with Indiana Jones. He'd done second unit work. He'd done making of films for Amblin Productions as well. But he'd never directed a feature at this stage. And he was in his early 40s and he was ready to do so. That the, This was the moment to do it. Knowing what he knew about knowing what he knew about directing through producing, he, he went into this very much with his eyes open. And he knew it would be a tricky job as it would turn out to be. Disney then had the script for Arachnophobia, um, which in its original form was far more horror driven. But Disney's Jeffrey Katzenberg sent it Marshall's way and Marshall was interested. Now, it was a horror film. And, you know, there's another Amblin film that follows this to a degree in that Gremlins, the original screenplay for Gremlins, played far more heavily on horror than it did on comedy. And Arachnophobia, whether it was overtly following this or, or overtly influenced, that they wanted to follow more of a, a, a comedy path on it because they kind of figured first of all they need people to see it and secondly that the horror moments would punch a bit harder if they were coated with coated with comedy that it was seen as this far friendlier film that if they'd just gone straight for rampaging spiders so a budget of around 20 22 million was allocated and jeff daniels came on board to star as in the lead role um and off the back of his casting, more changes were made. So one of them was before he was cast, apparently the, the lead character wasn't afraid of spiders. And Daniel's coming on, it, it helped take the film more comedic. But it also added in the fact that he the central character is an arachnophobe. You've also got John Goodman, the aforementioned wonderful John Goodman, who steals every scene he's allowed anywhere near as Delbert, the bug, you know, the bug hunter, who adds no shortage of comedy to the movie. That 
budget that um, and relatively modest really um, although this was the late 80s that it was filming the vast majority of the film would be shot in Los Angeles around the Burbank area on sound stages but there was the expensive prologue where they did go to Venezuela and they filmed in areas that hadn't been filmed in before and that took a, a good degree of expense this is where we meet uh, Julian Sands character in there and uh, as much as I, I like Julian you'd have to charitably say it's not his finest screen work in this film nonetheless once that prologue's in place and they the spider comes back to america and it goes into this very domestic small town america story i think arachnophobia really really finds its feet now the actual putting spiders on film was no mean feat whatsoever so the lead spider in the film is it is one that they nicknamed big bob and there was an actual spider and there was also a mechanical version of it to get the sequences that they needed he was named big bob incidentally as the story goes after the director robert zemeckis and he was of course part of the amelin family for the back of the future trilogy uh, for a start but he, uh, the, the, the Big Bob spider, uh, the, there was a real one, there was a mechanical one. They painted purple markings on him as well to give him an extra sinister look. And reading up on it, they gave him, and steady when I tell you this, uh, a strap-on abdomen uh, again to give him more heft and to make him look like a heavier spider i'm just going to move on because there's so many so many gags and so little time really um in terms of all the smaller spiders in there what they did is they sort of had a mini spider olympics and they tested various species with uh, over a series of things they could or couldn't do all under the watchful eye of um, animal cruelty organizations as well and in the end the one that they went with was the new zealand elena spider um but even so even though they'd found this this agile spider that could do roughly the things that they want it's not really the kind of animal you can train in in much the same way, is it? I mean, if you're making a Beethoven film, you've got a great big bloody dog, and, and dogs, to a degree, if you throw food in the right direction, will do what you want them to do. Spiders, not quite so easy, although they did have a few tricks. So one of them they found was the cleaning product, Pledge, the lemon flavour of Pledge that they could put that in certain places on the set where they didn't want the spiders to go. It turned out the spiders were quite averse to it. There were also some wrangling tricks that they used, which don't sound particularly pleasant to me. And these are from archive, archive interviews to the likes of Entertainment Weekly. Uh, I think there's a New York Times piece as well that I, I was reading just to, just to get to the bottom of some of those. So they used hair dryers, for instance, to push them towards certain directions. They had tiny leashes, um, apparently. Small steel plates and magnets were used. And again, this was all under the watchful eye of the humane organisations. That the uh, and, and no spider was killed during the making of the film. That there are moments on screen in arachnophobia where what where, where you do see dead spiders, but they are just they are just spiders that had naturally died, and they used the corpses of those on on screen when they needed dead spiders on screen. Seems quite logical really the in terms of uh, in terms of all the shots though it was the challenge for the actors because the spiders so for instance there, there, there was one moment where and and this was in one of the set report pieces where big bob the, the spider big bob was asleep in the afternoon and they all had to hang around waiting for this spider to wake up before they could do anything that there were there were 
several moments where the spiders were just going off in all sorts of directions and the actors had to do take after take after take after take and the actors had to be hitting their mark pretty much every time because the spiders would would get it right and if you were the actor who had got it wrong on the one take the spiders had got it right that was going to cause all sorts of problems i mean hitchcockian influence the birds is a clear influence on it but also what frank marshall as debut director wanted to do was he wanted to frame his shots where he had the spiders and the humans in the same shot, which meant that he, he couldn't film them separately for large parts, and it, it did make it all the more trickier. And so the actors got the actors uh, got into a game of trying to bet on which take would be usable. And I think the most they got to was 21 takes on one particular sequence in the movie, just for, just for one shot. Um, and whilst that's not quite at the Stanley Kubrick, David Fincher level, that's a an awful lot of takes for uh, films where a film where the the camera isn't ma- it's not that it's not massively sophisticated to some degree but it, it's it's not hugely complicated in terms of the camera work and the camera movements required to capture the bulk of the shots in the film you could understand it if it's 21 takes in the venezuela sequence where you're up against all sorts of natural elements but in a studio environment that's that that's a, a lot no question the longest sequence to um, to to shoot was the finale. Again, I'm going spoilery here. I do understand if you depart at this point. Um, I'll try not to go explicitly spoilery. Just that it involves uh, it involves Jeff Daniels as Jennings uh, in a showdown with Big Bob, as you might guess, and that took two weeks to shoot. Of you know, again, uh, n- not the most massively complicated production. The Burbank parts of the movie, two weeks, thirteen hours a day, um, and. And for a couple of days, Daniel was, was wedged under something. Again, I'm not going to spoil it. Um, and you know, he he just had to he just had to sit there and basically throw throw bottles towards this spider and not hit it. In fact, there was at one point where during one of the sequences of the film, where the the, the, the spider Big Bob did actually during filming get get covered with a bit of wine as it happened, and the filming just had to stop for three four hours while this spider just dried out again naturally the film was in the can though and then the challenge really began as if it wasn't tricky enough to make the movie the the co-producer Richard Vane really put his finger on what the problem facing arachnophobia was going to be because he said he was quoted as saying people hear that it's about spiders and it's the last movie they want to see and there really was a, a large element of that when it came to working out how to promote the film now the, the movie was going to get a soft rating pg13 um, pg in the uk because there's very little blood in it i mean there's no abject terror particularly it just plays on the fact that some people are very very scared of spiders but in terms of what you actually see on the screen it's pretty harmless However, he was also going out in the summer of um, Total Recall and Robocop 2 was in there as well. These, these, these big violent uh, violent movies. I mean, D- Disney was focusing an awful lot of its efforts on Dick Tracy as well. Again, that's one I'm coming to in a, in a future film story. But how do you sell it? How do you push this film out that instinctively a lot of people don't want to see? And they came up with one of those awful hybrid words um, and they decided you know edutainment and dramedy and stuff like that so they decided to market the film as a thrillomedy a mix of thriller and comedy and as soon as pretty much any 
everyone heard that word, they just guffawed to themselves, thought someone's been paid an awful lot of money for that. That's just ridiculous. Instead, what they tried to do is tap into the film's humour for the promotions of it. You heard it a little bit in the trailer um, that I played you a bit of uh, at the start of this segment, that they, they don't play up the horror elements in it at all because they just figure, scare of spiders, that, that's going to hit you or it's not. Um, and the, I mean, the tagline was, what, eight legs, two fangs and an attitude. And they tried to posit it as as this comedy film and, and focus heavily on that when it came to promoting the movie. This approach, however, did not particularly work. That as effective as the film is, um, genuine arachnophobes just stayed away. They didn't go near it on the whole. And a film that had a good shot at becoming a huge hit was in fact a modest hit. And it wasn't it wasn't a massive disappointment or anything. It opened at number three in the box office in the summer of 1990. It went on to gross 50 million, 53 million actually, at the American box office off an opening weekend of $8 million. But there was a kind of feeling that there was a bigger, a bigger box office in this if they'd have, you know, if they'd have managed to somehow get around the fact of how do you sell the film in the first place? The actual reviews of the film, as it happened, were, were really quite strong. I mean, it, it, when it opened, it, it was just behind Ghost and Die Hard too and it did get some footing in there um and what p- people particularly seem to warm to as well was that comedy that i mean, I mean Ro- Ro- roger ebert was um was talking talked in his review about how the, the squirming comes out of entertainment enjoyment not terror there was a point incidentally where the disney marketing department did consider changing the title of the film just to soften it and the other working title that they were looking at was along came a spider which would turn out to be uh, which turned out to be the name of an alex cross thriller in the end starring morgan freeman that paramount put out um in the 1990s arachnophobia i think it's still a film that's um that, that that's really quite well liked but again it it, it if if you are scared of spiders it ain't going to be in your top 20 films in a hurry nor is it going to be the kind of film you put on just for a quiet night in with a glass of wine and a bit of popcorn conversely for frank marshall it would launch his directorial career he would go on to do films like alive and and the mighty congo congo again it's very firmly on the list to come to for hollywood pictures it it would be a springboard for an awful lot of films that came out during the 90s um but in terms of the experiment of will people go and see a film like this um will they will they turn out if they're scared of spiders the answer well they sort of did and they sort of didn't i should add just as a a postscript to that that um it's not stopping hollywood having another go though that it was revealed last year 2018 that james wan was overseeing a remake of arachnophobia so we wait and see now if they have slightly more luck luring more people to the box office that has been the latest episode of Film Stories. Thank you so much, as always, for your support of our little independent film project. Film Stories Issue 4 is on sale. You can find more about that at filmstories.co.uk. You can find video Film Stories. The latest one is on Alien and Aliens at youtube.com slash filmstories. On Twitter, you can find me at Simon Brew. You can find the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod. If you want to find us on Facebook, heck, we're on there too. Facebook.com slash filmstoriesonline. But for now, I'll leave you in peace. This has been Film Stories. I'll be back again soon with another batch for you. You all take care. Bye-bye.
discover to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.